Welcome to Indefinable Magic, a word salad thrown together but with Cybermen instead of tomatoes and bandrills for cucumber. Written and performed or tossed, that's continuing the salad metaphor quiet at the back, grow up, by me, Toby Haydoke. This episode, From Boy to Fan. Just a quick note before I start properly. I will be quoting from some Peter Haining books in this podcast. They're big, large-format, hardback specials from the 1980s, full of facts and information and photos that were a Christmas regular in a Doctor Who fan stocking for a few years on the trot. The books are all upstairs on my shelf. I'm not going to check them for quotes. I do a very fact-heavy podcast called Too Much Information, which involves wading through paperwork and cross-referencing things. These podcasts are not they. These are reminiscences, musings, memories. They're not definitive, nor are they intended to be. The memory, as a great man, slash the worst producer Doctor Who ever had, uh, depending on which side of the fence you sit, once said... Cheats. That's not really the point of this. If, say, I'm doing an honest and open monologue about, perhaps, alcoholism, with alcohol use in Doctor Who as a prism through which to examine that, you don't need to contact me to point out an example of alcohol in Doctor Who that I didn't use. But thanks, though, in a way in which I really don't mean thanks. Ah, Doctor Who fans, never knowingly avoiding an opportunity to correct people, even when they're not actually wrong. I get it, for I too am a Doctor Who fan. I understand the need to join in, to point out a possible oversight, to correct a nagging mistake. But just imagine if you'd just say, I don't know, recited an epic story from memory, using all the performance skills at your disposal, and then edited it together in a nicely presented package in a handmade presentation case with gorgeous illustrations and a personal note about how this tied in with the sad death of a loved one. And the first thing somebody did was pick up on a slight mispronunciation of a name two-thirds of the way in, or say they don't like the font of the chapter headings or something. That's what doing Doctor Who products can be like. And I know... Fans are going to fan, because I am one. I know when I became a Doctor Who fan proper. I mean, I already ate, slept and breathed the show, I think, and I had already got the Radio Times Doctor Who 20th Anniversary Special, a publication which told me so much I didn't, up until that point, know about the show. Is that Peter Purvis from Blue Peter? Yes, he was a Doctor Who companion. Blimey. But on Christmas Day... 1983. I opened my main present, and there it was. A book with a lovely painting of the TARDIS, alone on a landscape, with a handful of colourful balloons floating beside it. A subtle, unsnazzy way of suggesting that a rather humble, occasionally daft show had something to trill about, and was going to do so with a certain understated style. A massive book all about Doctor Who. This was going to last all Christmas, for sure. And the title said it all. Doctor Who, A Celebration, by Peter Haining. 
I knew that name. Haining was the author of Deadly Nightshade. Well, not the author, so much as the collator of this book, which contained, according to its subtitle, Strange Tales of the Dark. I'd won it as a prize at school, chosen it from the bookshop because I was lured by the cover. A simple photograph of a woman's head and shoulders, a portrait backed by orange firelight, but with the simple substitution of her mouth and jaw for those of a skeleton, whilst the rest of her remained organic flesh and flowing hair. Told one what one needed to know. This was a collection of scary short stories. Deadly Nightshade was typical fare of the time, a collection of haunting ephemera of the kind hugely popular with school kids of my age. They were hardly target novels of Doctor Who stories, but they were a useful substitute in the absence of any. And remember, this was a time when if you wanted a thing, you had to find a thing, sometimes through luck and hard work. One couldn't just order the thing online. But that meant that one would sometimes have to take a punt. And I took a punt on Haining's collection of terrifying tales, and they passed the odd afternoon or bedtime with the requisite chill that livened up an early 1980s childhood. Oh, it wasn't all luminous sweatpants, bouncing mullets and neon signage, you know. So Haining was a known name outside of the world of Doctor Who, but within the Haydoke Library. Having the two come together seemed like a happy coincidence, and so I stared at this book, Doctor Who, a celebration, which I'd never heard of, and it seemed like everything I could possibly want. And whilst I remember nothing about the contents of Deadly Nightshade, I've just had a scan of the stories therein, and nothing really rings a bell, even though there are some great writers gathered, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, Robert Block. I can quote whole passages of Doctor Who, a celebration. And what a celebration it was. It had everything you needed. A chapter on each Doctor, each one accompanied by a chapter by each Doctor. William Hartnell was dead, of course, but they used words taken from interviews given by the actor before his death in April 1973. Articles by script editors and producers. But best of all, and the bit I would keep going back to, The Hooniverse, a story-by-story guide giving a brief taste of what each, every single, adventure was like, and then a few behind-the-scenes snippets too. I haven't flicked through the book for years now, but I still mentally go back to these glorious paragraphs time and time again. They are the template for each story in my mind. The potted history of Doctor Who up until that point, which I only spotted after a few months, hadn't actually been written by Haining, but instead by Jeremy Bentham, a name I knew from the pages of Doctor Who magazine which I picked up every now and again, or someone got from a shop for me if they remembered. He was a terribly serious person, the uber-mensch of Doctor Who. In the Radio Times 20th anniversary special, the similarly compelling precy of each adventure was written by Ian Levine, another name to conjure with, an important fan whose memories, like Bentham's, were our only gateways to the series' past. But Bentham, in a celebration, had more space than Levine in the Radio Times publication, and each story got a couple of paragraphs to give you a taste of its plot and a few tantalising factoids, and occasionally the odd opinion. But this was a time when the past 
was a thing to behold with awe. It seems these days you can't put any comment online about an aspect of your favourite show without people queuing up to say that they don't like it, or what they don't like about it. I mean, it's not just Doctor Who. You say something like, what a nice day on Twitter, and before you know it, you're swamped by the what's nice about it, or oh yeah, it's nice for you, but what about if you live in the Ukraine? Or I'm not having a nice day, are you erasing my experience, and before you know it, it's not a nice day anymore, and you worry you'll never have a nice day ever again. But in Doctor Who, a celebration, there wasn't much room for settling scores with disappointing slices of Who. Pretty much anything and everything from yesteryear was a slice of televisual magic. With the odd exception. In those days, a few fan laws were ratified from which those arrested under them have never quite recovered. The space pirates went at a snail's pace, whilst the android invasion was an anomaly in an otherwise strong season. But generally, the Bentham Encyclopedia of the Stories of Doctor Who accentuated the positive, apart from, of course, when it came to the worst Doctor Who story of all, TM, the one story we were allowed to be down on that deserved to be shot dead in the street. I refer, of course, to the gunfighters. It is not good, wrote Bentham. It is bad and it is ugly. Ugly seemed a tad unnecessary, and it was only, oh, about twenty years later, that I realised he was invoking the title of a Sergio Leone Western in order to enunciate his criticism. That's nothing, though. I think it took me about two decades to realise that the film Con Air's title was a pun on Aircon. But there we go. Anyway, the acting, said Bentham, was more West Ham than West Coast. Not a reference to the actual place West Ham, as it seemed to my eyes, but because ham is bad acting. So West Coast becomes um, West Ham. Yeah, as gags go, that's pretty high on the not good and indeed bad and bit ugly stakes. But hey-ho, the script, we are told, is pure Talbot Rothwell. I had no idea what that meant, and only years later did I realise it referred to the scribe of many a carry-on movie. But yeah, the gunfighters was bad, and it was okay to say so. And I don't think that the gunfighters has ever recovered. And this was a universal opinion, i.e. it was shared by that other official tome from this time, the Radio Times 20th Anniversary Special, which, with its pithier remit, could only accuse the gunfighters of having poorly drawn versions of Doc Holliday, Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. But it was enough to suggest that this wasn't up to much. Only the fish people in the underwater menace got anything that approached similar opprobrium in this otherwise cheery and positive rundown from Ian Levine in the Radio Times. So there we had it. The Gunfighters was the worst Doctor Who story. And I remember a few short years later overhearing two young fans discussing which was the worst story in a convention queue. Apart from the Gunfighters, of course, they agreed, as that was definitely the actual worst. Further listening revealed that neither of them had actually seen it, but, you know, when you've condemned something in writing thanks to the memories of a grown-up who saw something once 18 years previously, then you just have to suck it up, OK, Corral? Now, this 
isn't the place to argue the merits or otherwise of individual Doctor Who stories. So again, don't write in. And I'm such a perverse, oh, look at me, aren't my opinion special kind of gimp that I might actually pretend to myself that I like the gunfighters more than I actually do just to be contrary. I'm not like ordinary fans, says my narcissistic subconscious. I can see the beauty of the story. They'll think it's crap. It's the Hooniverse equivalent of throwing the word sheeple into an otherwise rational conversation about sun cream. But taking my own shortcomings out of the equation. I think some of the jokes in The Gunfighters are so deliberately naff they might sail over the head of a younger viewer and only tickle the funny bone of an adult, which is why those who saw it at the time may be less won over by its charms than someone who came to it years later, and indeed when they're a bit older. But I'll never know. I will only ever view The Gunfighters through the prism of its official status as worst story ever, and any of my thoughts about it are a reaction to or against that. But it does generally languish pretty low in polls, even now, and some people who hate it have probably never read Doctor Who A Celebration, nor have they been exposed to received wisdom. So maybe it is just rubbish, even though there are some great performances. Anthony Jacobs as a sardonic and drunk Doc Holliday, and John Alderson as an evangelistic and wry Wyatt Earp. He flew in from your actual Hollywood to do it, you know. And some Wonderful sets by Barry Newbury shot in the film sequences rather artfully by director Rex Tucker. But it's also a western shot in a BBC studio. A Doctor Who story that A. has no monsters and B. doesn't take itself too seriously and C. is punctuated by a ballad narrating the action sung by Nurse Gladys Emanuel off of Open All Hours. So I can't really be surprised if it's not everyone's cup of tea. Or... Carp of Tai, as Doctor Who's versions of Ike and or Billy Clanton might have pronounced it in their attempts to meander all over the world in search of an American accent and try to find it whilst acting at the same time and managing to pull off neither. And not everything sticks. A much-loved story at the time, wrote Bentham about Galaxy 4, and one that sadly no longer exists in the BBC archives. A lovely description that gives you a warm glow especially as it was written by schoolteacher William Ems. Ah, a schoolteacher. You can imagine him in his cardi being all benign and writing a much-loved story in his book-lined office in between being a latter-day Mr Chips. In fact, Bill Ems was quite a caustic fellow who wasn't a schoolteacher at the time he worked on Doctor Who and who didn't think much of the show itself and provided a story with such an obvious twist and very little in the way of drama that one can only imagine Mr Bentham was looking back with glasses that had undergone a heavy tint from the rose petal. Or someone had slipped something into his tea during the broadcast and the effects of it had not worn off when he came to write his piece for Doctor Who Celebration. Now, yes... You might be the person out there who loves Galaxy 4 more than any other, and it does have its charms. Look, I like all of Doctor Who, but I'm not sure much loved is an accurate appellation these days, and that its loss from the archives is more keenly felt than any number of other stories I could mention, irrespective of whether you, yes, you, the one about to go on Twitter and type at Toby Haydock, listened to your original hour-long piece of writing and presenting that was free to access on the internet, broadcast quality with an original score by an actual Doctor Who composer, and the only thing I'll pass comment on is the fact that I actually like Galaxy 4. Right? And yet... Of course, 
I'm a total hypocrite. So don't point that out either. Because during the course of this, I will undoubtedly be picking holes in the oeuvre of Mr. Haining. Because that's what fans do. But not yet. A celebration, you see, was so good, so perfect. It covered all the bases. The doctors, the companions, the stories, all president correct. Lists of key info, and throw in the odd producer and script editor too. All the names we knew and loved already, really. Plus, oh yes, the sad news that a few people from my bookspines, Brian Hales, a gentleman writer, said Bentham's blurb, David Whittaker, Malcolm Hulk, all dead. As they made up a pretty hefty percentage of the writers of the Target books, it made early Doctor Who seem like the work of ghosts. Venerable, ancient gentlemen, quilling on parchment through cobwebs. The fact that they all died when they were around my age now gives everything a terrible new perspective as I bash away on a machine that would have thrilled and amazed those giants of written sci-fi. But anyway, their books were dwarfed by the Haining tomes, which were reassuringly hefty and capable of being transported on long journeys or camping trips, strengthened as they were by the hard back cover that protected them from damage. I remember a celebration being passed around the sitting room in that post-Christmas lunch haze. Orange glow from the fire, quality street wrappers rustling as the empty ones outweighed those that still had chocolates within them, although they could still be put to good use. The red, the gold or the green foil straightened and flattened in one of those now lost. You made your own fun with what you had in those days, operations. Oh, I never knew it started the day after President Kennedy was assassinated, said my mum with interest. I didn't really know what that meant, but boy, I found out. And quick. And it was a brilliant thing to unfurl to grown-ups, should ever the conversation turn to my favourite programme over the years. Oh, really? I remember that, they'd say, and their look of horror, disdain or contempt that you were a Doctor Who fan suddenly melted into one of nostalgia and wistful remembrance. He was never called Doctor Who, said a brother who had also picked up Doctor Who a celebration in that Christmas lull and was idly flicking. And look, no one ever said beam me up Scotty, and Sherlock Holmes never said elementary my dear Watson in any of the books. Those two facts from Doctor Who a celebration, I've never actually bothered to check, but I've unleashed them at parties on many occasion. Oh, and I was today years old when it dawned on me why I used to go home from so many parties alone. Uh, I was also today years old when I realised I'm never using the phrase I was today years old ever again. It's worse than unleashing Sherlock Holmes and Star Trek-based facts in lieu of an aphrodisiac at soirees. And so, how exciting that there was a follow-up to Doctor Who a celebration. But if I'm honest, it did suffer a bit from difficult second album actually of course book syndrome even if that wasn't enough to stop me reading and rereading it over and over again it was called the key to time but of course it couldn't be a repeat of what had gone before that would be the ultimate embodiment of diminishing returns and well as we'll discover there was plenty of time for that to happen but no the key to time tried to repeat the success of a celebration by doing something a bit different. And like a true Doctor Who fan, I love Doctor Who because it can do all sorts of different things, but when they are too different, it jars and I hate them. 
The key to time's core idea was a good one, but I wasn't sure I was ready for it. I like lists, but this, this was a diary, a chronological history of Doctor Who, outlining the events of key dates in the development of the show. When productions began, incidents happened, key personnel sadly died. It was quite an arbitrary selection, for sure. The release of The Empire Strikes Back gets a mention simply because it has some Doctor Who guest actors in it. I didn't mind that, though, as I liked reading about which actors appeared in Doctor Who as full cast lists were still not yet available to me. In fact, I'd have been delighted if they'd gone the whole hog. Never mind The Empire Strikes Back. Why not have, say, January the 19th, 1974? The first episode of The Palaces is aired, directed by Hugh the Highlanders and Fury from the Deep David. It features a number of Doctor Who people in the cast, including Philip, the Five Doctors Latham, Gary, Evil of the Daleks, Watson, Barry, the Massacre, Justice, Donald, the Keys of Marinus, the Faceless Ones, Pickering, John, Ghostlight, even though it hasn't been made yet, but if I don't mention it, someone will message me saying, have you forgotten that he was in it and was also in Ghostlight, Nettleton, and Kenneth, the Claws of Axos, Bender. Oh, I'd have loved that because I'm a thoroughly boring man. And I was a thoroughly boring child. Fortunately, Mr Haining had a slightly more eclectic taste and it meant that all sorts of key, oh, key, key to time, yeah, events were covered. I was never quite satisfied with it, though, because I think I wanted to know what the stories, which, remember, younglings, at this stage were not available to watch unless some miracle repeat season was unleashed, were like. I wanted clues about the pictures I couldn't see. And, of course, the Haining books had photos, loads of photos, which helped with that. Except, in the case of The Key to Time, this one didn't really. Sure, it had some lovely colour pictures in the middle, but the rest of the illustrations came courtesy of fans. Fans? Oh, why do they get fans involved in the process? Fans shouldn't get their hands on anything to do with Doctor Who. They're just fans, thought this <clears throat> fan. They're like me. They're unimportant and not special and probably offensively geeky and worthless. The people who made the show, they were amazing. Gods. Weavers of dreams. The fans were people like me. Except people like me who had managed to get their names into a Doctor Who book. The lucky bastards. And to be fair... There was some quality work on display. I didn't dislike the pictures themselves. I still remember some of the names. Some of those pictures, they were superb, amazing, evocative and very accurate renditions of much-loved characters. Some drawn brilliantly with individual dots to make for a unique and, it seemed to me, very clever set of compositions. There were striking images from Colin Howard, whose classy, attractive work involving ice warriors and sea devils would have made superb target novel covers. So it was pleasing when his name began to adorn official Doctor Who products some years later. Other names stuck in my head. Tim Pioracini, Vitaly Sabase, uh, apologies to both if time and incompetence have mangled your names, and Ronald Binney, people I've never met before or since, never encountered in my many wanderings through the worlds of Doctor Who online or in person, but whose names are etched forever in my brain. All right, not in the same part of my brain that remembers David Collings or Fiona Cumming or Jan Spazinski, but an unimpeachable little neural compartment somewhere in my noggin nonetheless. I think my main problem with the key to time 
was that it was also several inches shorter than Doctor Who's celebration and the books that followed it. So it always looked a little bit like a runny Corbett on a shelf of John Cleese's and Ronnie Barker's. So I looked down on it quite a lot and rued the fact that it never quite captured the joy of its predecessor. Things were back on form for me with the Doctor Who file. All right, there wasn't much in the way of lists or cast details in this either, but it was an invaluable set of essays written by some movers and shakers in the world of Doctor Who, some obvious and some, thrillingly, less so. It now reads like a collection of some of the great heroes of the show, but a motley crew who had been thoughtfully assembled, alongside the obvious, each of the Doctors, Terence Dix, Barry Letts, were John Luca Rotti and Michael Wisher and John Friedlander. And as if to emphasise that Doctor Who legends were a dwindling resource, by the time I'd torn open the Christmas wrapping on this one, in the cinnamon spice and nutmeg-filled environs of Old Haydokesville during Christmas 1986, a number of the contributors, Ian Martyr, Dennis Spooner, Heather Hartnell and Robert Holmes, had all died by the time their words drifted into my vision. Robert Holmes. Oh, my goodness. His short piece demonstrated why he was the writer of so many beloved snippets of Doctor Who. Self-deprecating, funny, slightly indiscreet. I read his chapter first. His death during the production of The Trial of a Time Lord still cast a shadow over that year's events in the Hooniverse, and I immediately regretted never having had the chance to meet this wonderful, witty man who seemed to speak Doctor Who fluently, yet wear his genius so lightly. His punchline to his tales of woe, written with tongue firmly in cheek and a brilliant turn of phrase, of, Dear God, will it never end? In fact, don't worry, God, make that a memo to Michael Grade, or some such, was an appropriately caustic last line. Uh, a willingly rueful valedictory flourish from a man responsible for many of Doctor Who's sharpest jokes, who, one learned later, had been treated with obtuse disdain by the current BBC management on what would turn out to be his last assignment not only on Doctor Who, but on the channel whose many different dramas and series he had gilded with his special knack for character and dialogue, making so-called disposable moving wallpaper somewhat more special than it needed to be. We have very little of Holmes in his own words, but that chapter is a cracker, and I must have read it a hundred times. Holmes was definitely where my heart was. It is only matched, that chapter, by the efforts of a writer who, prior to this, I had been all too ready, unlike Holmes, to dismiss. Donald Cotton did, after all, write what was definitely the worst Doctor Who story ever written, even though I'd not actually seen it. The Gunfighters. What could he possibly have to offer? Well, as it turns out, joke upon joke upon joke. My goodness, his account of working on his two stories, The Mythmakers and The Gunfighters, was hilarious, especially the, as it turns out, rather exaggerated account of why episode three of The Mythmakers ended up being called Death of a Spy. The plot contained no spy, and therefore his death would be difficult to arrange, observed Cotton dryly. There was also a picture of him, and one of John Lucarotti, which might be the only ones I saw of either or both for about twenty years, and which were far better than a fan drawing of Azal or a pencilled sketch of the master. But the Doctor Who file still didn't match the amazing picture count of A Celebration, which had illustrative gold on practically every page, and most of them 
were pictures I'd never seen before. In fact, an illustration of the extent of the resources available to Doctor Who historians at the time can be seen on the chapter entitled The Man Who Put the Science into Doctor Who in the Doctor Who file, which has, hilariously, a picture of Verity Lambert as its portrait. I mean, yes, she did nominally write the piece, which is about Mervyn Pinfield, the eponymous Man Who, but nonetheless, it was an odd juxtaposition that drew attention to the fact that at the time there was seemingly no photographic evidence of one of Doctor Who's key early contributors. Fortunately, we have uncovered a few since, and it is a sign of how easy it is to please a Doctor Who fan of a certain vintage that the day the visage of Mr Pinfield first hoved into my view was indeed a magical one. Those of you spoiled by Doctor Who Confidential and the internet should try to imagine what it'd be like if it took you 30 years after first seeing Rose to get a glimpse of Julie Gardner's face. I know, it's inconceivable, isn't it? It's only when putting this together, by the way, that I've realised that there was no large format book release in 1985. Gosh, when did I get that year? Probably, because I was known to stray to the dark side of the toy shop, some sort of vehicle for my Star Wars figures to ride in or be killed by. I loved my Star Wars figures, even though, like the gunfighters, I'd not actually seen any of the films. The cinema in our nearest town had closed down. The last film to be shown there was Ten with Dudley Moore and some prominent parts of Bo Derrick in 1980, but I was too young to go to that. So Doctor Who books were definitely my nourishment. I can remember when I was hunched over those venerable tomes, rereading and rereading them over and over again, hoping to chance upon a nugget I'd forgotten or only half digested or, or to enjoy again a piece of writing that was especially evocative. They have stuck in my mind far more than whatever grisly fate I'd bestowed upon my Boba Fett or 2-1-B medical droid. That usually involved ripping the tube that went from his mouth to his chest from its oral socket and dying somehow. But anyway, so, whilst I know I played with my Star Wars figures a lot, I know my brain was more stimulated by those days when I was indoors and it was haining. Anyway, what was absent in 1985 must have been more than made up for when I felt my presence the following year, as aside from Haining, someone else was getting in on the act. Jeremy Bentham wasn't a fan. He was a famous philosopher. OK, I knew they weren't the same person, probably, or I, I didn't think they were, and yet they kind of were. I don't know how it works. There's a weird cognitive dissonance of youth where you don't quite understand some things and they sort of all exist and coalesce together and yet not. But anyway, Jeremy Bentham, not the one whose dead body was mummified and put in a university courtyard or something, and yet was it? No, I don't think it is, but it wasn't. By the way, reader, it wasn't. You're not a reader. You're a listener. You know what I'm talking about. You might not. Look up the other Jeremy Bentham, not the Doctor Who one. Anyway, listen, shush, I'm going off script and off piste. I'm probably sounding slightly pieced. Anyway, Jeremy Bentham had written a similarly large format book to the Haining Tomes, but this was far more specialist, honing in, as its title suggested, on the early years. Now, this hadn't come out in time for Christmas, but this was before you could get every piece of information you could need at the touch of a button, so you got things when you could get them. 
In those days, you had to say, visit the Longleat exhibition with your mum, see this amazing looking book in the Doctor Who shop there, and she'd have to wait until your back was turned and purchase it amongst a haul of gifts that she then stowed in a cupboard for months before unleashing them at various present-giving opportunities. For all I know, she's still got a set of Andrew Skilleter art cards stashed away for my 50th. It was probably the case that instead of two books for one on Christmas Day, a largesse that our family finances wouldn't have been able to sustain, that one of those two 1985 publications, Haining's Doctor Who File and Bentham's The Early Years, was given to me for my birthday. Being just a week after Christmas means that any overflow from Yuletide could be redirected to the anniversary of my arrival. Worse, sometimes, if one was given a present deemed too big just for Christmas, you got a this'll do for your birthday as well, something which never happened to my brothers and sisters who had the fortune of being born in March, May and June. In fact, if they did get a this is a Christmas and birthday size present, which they sometimes did, so much time had passed come their birthday that they got another present anyway, which never happened to poor old January the 2nd McGee, that's me. You'd think I wouldn't remember this by the time I turned 48, but those scars run deep. Anyway, two books Magoo, who is the same person as January the 2nd McGee, keep up, had kind of spoiled Giftsville for himself that year, as the danger of buying a book in August and hiding it till December, mum, is that bored teenagers stuck in a house in the middle of nowhere scan bookshelves and go through cupboards out of boredom and occasionally might find orange carrier bags nestled behind wrapping paper. Mum always bought her wrapping paper in January when it was much cheaper. And to be fair, that is something I have also never forgotten, which is why I can now sometimes afford sweets. Have you ever grown up, Toby? Certainly not. And within that orange carrier bag was Doctor Who, the early years. Now, this was definitely my kind of book. Not one for general consumption. This was specialist. But it had things I didn't think could possibly exist. A whole, what, 20 years after some of these episodes had been made. 20 years? That's like forever. I'm surprised the paper papyrus probably, that the design drawings was on hadn't disintegrated thanks to the ravages of time. This was a book that had no right to exist, a deep dive into the minutiae of a small number of ancient stories. There were photos galore, cast lists, war, design sketches, interviews. Now, I'm very middle class, so a deferred gratification kind of guy, so I only flicked through the book on the half dozen times I sneaked it from the cupboard and out of the orange carrier bag and had a sneaky solo session with it, hoping my mum didn't walk in and embarrass me, hunched over as I flicked through the pages on my own. My rule was not to read the text, but just look at the pictures and read the cast lists. There were even off-screen stills from episode one of Power of the Daleks, which adorned the back with no explanation. This was the first time I'd seen telesnaps, and there they were, casually tossed on the back pages of this book about William Hartnell stories with no context. It's like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls nestled amongst the pages of the Beano. I did notice that there was a slight formatting problem with the dates and the episode titles, which went out of sync on a couple of listings, proof that even the best Doctor Who thing isn't without its flaws that can take the sheen off it unnecessarily. 
and I can still remember that formatting issue. I'm beyond help. And it just goes to show that even after all these years in a stream of consciousness celebration about a highlight from my childhood, I have to bring up a tiny niggling error. It's bloody inescapable, this pesky character trait of ours that so irritates me and others, yet resides in my own psyche, ready to go, I think you'll find that you do that too, at irritating moments. Anyway, I successfully managed to hold off reading the text of Doctor Who, the early years, until I opened it on, I think, my birthday. And I am a good enough actor to have been surprised. And anyway, the excitement was genuine, as I had the text to read. It became apparent that it had chosen the stories, this book, that it had concentrated upon, based on the fact that the book was essentially a showcase for the photo and drawing collection of designer Raymond P. Cusick. But that was fine. What photos they were. Some printed full page. And they made these stories, these old black and white stories, look amazing. Those monochrome prints, like those depicting classic black and white movies in other large format books that I had on horror, say, or monsters. In the absence of moving pictures, this was the only visual representation we had of these classics. And you didn't have access to moving pictures in those days. Okay, and boy. Did they look amazing? Now, although there wasn't much info about my particular specialist interest, guest actors, one-off performers, the books did reveal that Peter Glaze, the scheming villain of the Censorites, was now sadly dead, referring to the fact that his obituaries many years after his Doctor appearance still referred to his guest turn on the show. In the absence of IMDb, this sort of entry was an important update for the cerebral spotlight where I stored actor details in my noggin. It would also be handy information when it came to the eventual downfall of my love affair with Haining's books, but we'll come to that later. With the triumvirate of tomes, with the Haining moniker, probably the most removed books from the shelf, I had to grudgingly accept that the first one, so ideal on pretty much every level, still had never been beaten. And the Time Traveller's Guide, which came in 1987, did nothing to overturn that view. In fact, its attempt to recapture the more programme-based, information-heavy kind of vibe of the first book meant that a number of the chapters were essentially just lists. Now, that's the kind of thing I thought I wanted. I'm a Doctor Who fan. I like a list. But whilst my comparative lack of enthusiasm about the key to time had been stylistic, within its pages there was still much new information and nuggets and insights hitherto unknown to me. The Time Traveller's Guide, however, didn't really tell me anything much I didn't by now already know. It was basically a list of planets, or of what, spaceships? Oh, come on, this is just a collation, I thought. I, I, even I could do better than this. So, actually, maybe it wasn't the receipt of Doctor Who a celebration that made me a fan. Maybe it was this one. Maybe it was the Time Traveller's Guide, the one where disappointment and criticism, the feeling that the people making this stuff could do better, that dominated. There was coverage in The Time Traveller's Guide of the hiatus, Doctor Who's temporary axing or rest or whatever you like to think of it as. So there was certainly a bit to pore over 
and seethe at the injustice of, cursing those involved who you deemed to be the miscreants. Oh yeah, this was real fan behaviour. I think I'd read a review or a comment or two in Doctor Who magazine, or maybe the odd fan publication I'd managed to get my hands on, that had started to be critical of the Haining oeuvre, suggesting that he was essentially publishing the same book every year. As a grotty teenager who had suddenly discovered the love of picking holes in my favourite thing, I was happy to go along with this observation, if only subconsciously, even though it's actually not really a fair comment. A celebration is not the key to time, is not the Doctor Who file. But I struggle now to think of anything much that the Time Traveller's Guide has, apart from a continuation of a celebration's best bit, the descriptions of each individual story from Warriors of the Deep onwards. And again, this section was actually written by the estimable Jeremy Bentham. And each entry was actually a bit longer than those in the celebration had been. Double the information! Wonderful! I remember later staying at the house of an actor friend I got to know very early in my career, Vincent Brimble, and him reading that bit and discovering for the first time that the light on the eye of the Silurian he played in Warriors of the Deep, Tarpok, hadn't actually flashed to indicate speech in the monster's first appearance, but that no one on the production team of Warriors of the Deep had known that. Hmm, it's like they needed some sort of continuity advisor on hand for that kind of thing, I'd say. I'd brought the book along so that he could get it signed by his co-star in the play that he was in, Caroline John, and he'd had a flick through and found the bit about his story. So I was quite chuffed about that, that he'd been intrigued enough to have a little look and then delighted to see that there was something written about his then only appearance in the show. He's since been in flux, which is also delightful, but that's another story. At this point, though, it was a few years after the cancellation of Doctor Who. Doctor Who was enduring its break from transmission and languishing in the doldrums of popular opinion, whereas when the book was published, Doctor Who was still just clinging on. But just as the series was getting another burst of energy in its last couple of years, the final Haining book from this period seemed to be making an effort to chime with the celebratory tone surrounding the brand to use the modern parlance, which very nearly sticks in my craw. Anyway, 25 glorious years, which again has a size issue, but nonetheless, with its Roman numerals on the cover and its general design, seemed to be a tome aiming to suggest that it was part of something ancient and important. Within its slightly smaller pages are various treats, some of which are repeats from earlier books. Each doctor gets a profile, but of course two more have been added to the roster since the celebration. There's a look at some of the other doctors too, which actually wasn't quite as interesting as the chapter on the actors who'd nearly played the role in an earlier book, but it was still worth a look. And then there was an odd obsession with the phrase, the doctor's favourite female companions, which is used in both the Central Colour Picture Gallery and a chapter which purports to interview all the regular actresses apart from a handful from the Hartnell era. There was also a breakdown of the stories, listing the key personnel, including the guest stars of each story. This was usually just two or three people purporting to be the lead guest actors of each adventure. Now, 
somewhat obvious. There were parts played by the most famous actors, and so these were the people selected for this section of each tale. Marius Goring for Evil of the Daleks, Richard Todd for Kinder, Peter Butterworth. But hang on. Bill Matthews as Davis for Doctor Who and the Silurians, Eric Hilliard as Dr Reeves for the Demons, David Webb as Leeson in Colony and Space. Two of them are dead before the first episode is out. Bill Matthews is actually an uncredited extra in loads of stories and he only gets a credit on Doctor Who and the Silurians because he manages to get a couple of lines out in the 15 seconds he's on screen at the very beginning of the story before he gets killed. But what those actors have in common is that they're at the top of the cast list when it's given, in order of appearance. So what's happening here is that the actors being chosen are there because someone has cribbed their names from a cast list elsewhere, Radio Times or DWM Episode Guide, where the actors are listed in order of our seeing them. And the only person who'd do that when choosing just two or three actors as guest stars is going to be someone who not only hasn't seen the episodes, but doesn't know the stories well enough to choose the important characters from a cast list, i.e. someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about. However, there was a whole chapter that really killed this for me. A chapter that should have been right up my street. Intergalactic guest stars, it promised, and my goodness, this one was highlighting and even better interviewing some of the actors who popped in for just one or two visits to the show. My castless knowledge was going to skyrocket here. There were profiles of Peter Gilmore and Julian Glover and Robert Beatty and all sorts. Now, I understood that most people who'd played regular roles in Doctor Who would be happy to chat about it, but surely other actors were just too grand. They had better things to do. Actors are always busy and doing amazing things than reminisce about just popping up to add thespian ballast to a 1966 four-parter or whatever. But Haining, amazingly, had got hold of George Kaluris and of Hugh Burden and of... Hang on. Peter Glaze? He even had a quote from him. Recalls Peter, it says. Recalls Peter in the present tense. But, but he's dead. Doctor Who the early years told us he died in the early 80s, and he did, February 1983. Fact and death. Fans. Recalls Peter. I smelled a rat. I wasn't really villainous. Recalls Peter. More of a schemer. Hang on. That rings a bell. It, it's not like schema is a genre of villain, so, so it's an odd thing to say. It's not like megalomaniac or mad scientist or crazed commander. It's a very specific piece of phraseology. Specific to Jeremy Bentham's writing in Doctor Who, A Celebration. Peter Glaze likely didn't recall this observation at all. One, because it's an observation made and originally phrased by Jeremy Bentham. And two, because Peter Glaze is dead. But it's the phrasing that's the issue. I could understand if Haining had snagged an interview from an old newspaper file but ascribed the words to Glaze in the present day. That would account for recalls. Underhand, but a journalistic technique and still with an element of truth within it. But this, he's nicked the words from Bentham's quill and put them in Glaze's mouth. What a good job he didn't pretend to have tracked down other guest stars. Otherwise we might have had... Say, John Alderson from The Gunfighters saying, 
It was not good. You could almost say it was bad and it was ugly. Or Stephanie Bidmead from Galaxy 4 recalling that My main memory is that it was a much-loved story at the time, but one that sadly doesn't reside in the BBC archive anymore. Another one that really stuck out to me and made me doubt, therefore, the huge and unlikely coup of Haining being, as far as I can tell, the only person to have interviewed him about his role in the series, was a quote from the mighty actor Robert Beatty about playing General Cutler in The Tenth Planet. One of the short quotes Haining apparently elicited from Beatty was, The guys playing the Cybermen really fried under the studio lights, and that set my alarm bells ringing. Guys and fried were exactly the kind of words you used at that time amongst standard English text to suggest that someone was American. And yes, I know, Beatty was Canadian. But this was the 1980s when in England men were men, women were women and Canadians may as well have been Americans. Now I have no proof that Haining made up that interview, but I'd be flabbergasted if he didn't. Julian Glover who has always actually been pretty generous with his time when talking about Doctor Who and indeed anything else, recalls in 25 Glorious Years that, and I quote, as far as I can remember, which, as we'll discover, is a step up in present company, I had done sci-fi on TV a few years before the crusade in Quatermass and the Pit, which Rudolf Cartier directed brilliantly for the BBC in 1959. Which indeed he did. Rudolf Cartier directed Quatermass and the Pit brilliantly for the BBC in 1959. But Julian Glover wasn't there when he did. Julian Glover was in the film version, directed by Roy Ward Baker for Hammer, nearly a decade later. And after the crusade. But that's moot at this point. So if Haining's putting words into the mouth of Mr Glover, I'm pretty sure that he's putting Americanisms into the mouth of Robert Beatty. And actually, looking at the quotes from George Coloris and Hugh Burden, they're not so much memories as kind of potted factoids, and I'm afraid I don't believe them. The Coloris one, I think, claims to be from an original modern-day interview, like the Glover and the Glaze quotes, because Coloris was still alive at the time, whereas the Burden one, because he was dead by then, claims to be from an interview done some time ago. Well, I've looked for that interview and I've never found it. And that became my loss of innocence. I mean, in those five years, from Christmas 1983 to Christmas 1988, I'd gone from being an eager nine-year-old to a cynical 14-year-old, and perhaps lost a bit of the trust, awe and wonder that goes with the former and is sadly gone by the latter. That in itself is pretty depressing, but I genuinely think the first book is better than the last. Well, of course it was. It had every element of Doctor Who to mine, and five years later, well, I'd become someone who got his kicks finding fault in things. No, or did I? No, no, that's wrong. I don't think I enjoyed it. I think it's an instinct that began to kick in. And maybe that's what becoming a fan does. Coupled with a loss of innocence, there's a desire to take ownership. Or maybe even to make that thing you love somehow the personification of or emblematic of whatever it is that you're battling in your life that you're not happy with about yourself or your circumstances or your innermost thoughts. Maybe boy was better than fan. 
I think I liked being the boy who learnt that Roger Delgado was called Roger Cesar Marius Bernadil Delgado Torres Castillo Roberto, who discovered that Annika Wills now lives in India. That, and only that, what mysteries there were still to uncover about key figures right then and there. And that the Doctor said things like, and these are quotes from the middle pages with colour pictures in Doctor Who a celebration, and oh, what pictures. I'm a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot. I had no idea what that meant. A gentleman to boot? Does he mean to kick? Why would a gentleman want to be kicked? Anyway, Hartnell said it apparently. Pertwee's quote was equally indecipherable. I remember saying to old Napoleon Boney, I said, or was it, I remember saying to old Napoleon, Boney, I said. I, I couldn't quite tell how it should fall. It wasn't even a full sentence anyway. What an odd choice. The Davison quote was funny. Even a broken clock tells the right time twice a day. Although, of course, when I revisited the visitation years later, it turned out that this wasn't a quote from the actual Doctor. It wasn't the Doctor who said it. How well. Great pictures, though. And it was fun when I finally watched and heard those stories and experienced those quotes in context. I still associate them with the middle pages of that book. But poring over them, trying to deduce their meaning, being given just fragments and hints and quotes and behind-the-scenes insights, it whetted my appetite to find out all there was to know about Doctor Who. And it's a quest that continues to this day, although the facts I need now are several layers further under the surface than those that were uncovered in the pages of Doctor Who a celebration. And since then, I've discovered a lot about those books and the things within them. I've discovered that they're not necessarily perfect, that being a name on a book spine or an important part of fandom isn't necessarily all that. But I have to confess something. That knowledge hasn't really helped me. That young boy in awe, those hitherto unknown facts all together in the same place, that new information I soaked up like a sponge. I didn't ever want to think about who wrote them and why they might be wrong or flawed. I was a willing supplicant. And when I finally got to speak to Jeremy Bentham, I thought he might say, yeah, that Haining, I wrote all the best bits and he just recycled stuff or made it all up. But he didn't. Jeremy didn't disappoint. He really is a scholar and a gentleman to boot. I remember saying to old Bentham, Jeremy, I said, I loved that chapter in Doctor Who A Celebration. But rather than big up his own contribution, he paid immense tribute to Haining. So long written off by me as the man who did the books of diminishing returns, the charlatan who destroyed my innocence when I discovered he made some stuff up. But no, Haining inspired Jeremy and helped him and left nothing but a hugely positive impression on someone who's done great work in Doctor Who history research. And I know as well as anyone that you can work as hard as you can on something, checking, double-checking, rewriting, rereading, and only when it's in print or on the shelves does suddenly a mistake, which for some reason you'd overlooked or it hadn't registered on every other previous occasion. And actually, they're usually the simplest of mistakes because your brain is concentrating so much on being on top of the stuff you might not know as well that you take your mental eye off the ball with some of the stuff that you know you know, and suddenly you've made a slip up. And it's there forever. 
I've made mistakes in my work, in my Doctor Who work. I'm not going to list them here. There's a whole self-flagellating podcast to be had with that one. Don't send in suggestions. So I can hardly berate Haining with a barrage of I think you'll finds from me, even though I know I'm being a tad generous here because my main objection to what he did is when it was malfeasance. But still, I also know that he didn't have a computer upon which you can cut and paste and switch text around. He didn't have the internet to answer a nagging query at the touch of a button. And he probably didn't know that the results of his labours would hang around for quite a while in the minds of the rather unusual people who bought his books. And that they're the sort of people who get their kicks more from highlighting what is wrong with something than they do for celebrating what is right. So I'll take my cue from that first book, and instead I will celebrate. I will celebrate those hardback epics packed with facts, and not facts, photos and pictures, which introduced me to the basics in terms of the doctors, the companions, the stories. They're not perfect. They vary in quality, and they have their ups and downs. But my goodness, I had a lot of fun with them. I may have greater knowledge now, I may have seen a few sacred cows get slain. I may actually rather like the gunfighters. But when I was none the wiser, when I scurried away into the corner and pored over those books time and again, sucking in their facts and pictures, I was happy. And Doctor Who, of course, connects us with our childhood. But childhood is not somewhere we can remain. And like Doctor Who... We survive and flourish only through change. And I was changing from boy to fan. And it's not a perfect process. Because I know what fans are like. And not just the dweeby, annoying ones that I'm definitely not like. Oh no, I'm not like them. Any similarities are purely coincidental. They're bad and they are ugly. So I'm not talking about the fans who, when you post a social media message saying... I'm so sad that my friend, the actor who did this, has died, posts, don't forget he was also in this, as though I'd forgotten, rather than was, say, more interested in displaying my sadness than presenting a whole CV at a time of mourning. I mean, they are annoying, but I kind of get it. Their mental wiring requires them to point out something they think is missing, or an error, and they can't help saying it, and that overrides their ability to read the emotional content of such a post and provide empathy. I get that. You have to know your people, especially if you're a bit like them. But there's the other kind of fan, and another kind of thing that fans do, those fans. What about the fans who know they're not exactly like the other fans? They have social skills and can discern emotion and don't feel the need to complete something that's obviously a generalisation. So when they point out any minor mistakes, they do it not because they're like the other fans. They do it to be funny, because... The suggestion is, this is what the other fans do. The sad fans. Ha ha, I'll point out the thing you missed, but I'll do it with a raised eyebrow. Yeah, but, but you're still doing it. You're just being postmodern about it. You're doing the same thing. It's the same action. If you kick me in the ghoulies, it still hurts if you do it with your tongue in your cheek or not. So just don't. Don't do the kicking. It's against every instinct we have. The smart, funny fan around town and the stereotypical, slightly nerdy guy with poorly honed social skills. I'm afraid 
just as the person on the street can't really tell the difference between the Caves of Androzani and the Twin Dilemma. They both look like crap old telly to them. I'm afraid all Doctor Who fans have more in common with each other to the outsider than we might care to admit to ourselves. And also, I have deliberately not referred back to those books I've just talked about when writing this, so I know there are going to be errors in my recollection. But in this case, that's the point. This podcast is about those books and how they lodged in my head and how they remain there now. Mistakes on my part, as well as Haining's, intact. Because, as I say, that rather proves my point. So please, curb that desire to digest the labours of this, something someone has done about your favourite programme, and to immediately rush to correct them. I've done it today. I read a lovely, interesting blog about the show that, when it popped into my inbox today, repeated an oft-maintained observation about an aspect of the Hartnell era that is simply wrong. I composed an I-think-you'll-find response, but at the last minute, I shelved it. That's not what that person needs the minute they've typed their nice blog and sent it out to provide entertaining reading, for the likes of me, for free. They're giving their reactions to the stories and not providing a definitive account. They want people to enjoy their work, not to rush to correct it. And yes, there are mistakes and egregious practices in Haining's books. But you know what there also is, Toby? There's your first encounter with many facts about the show that you still know because they lodged in your head back then. That prose, those pictures, those facts. So much of that stuff lit the fire of my fandom and those embers, they still glow. So to overlook what those books did for me, over and over again in my childhood, well, that would be wrong. It would discount all the good stuff that I take for granted in order to make me feel good about myself for what? Having discovered errors or weaknesses. Oh, bully for me. The Haining books, they introduced me to stories I didn't know at all or very well. They said who all the companions were, even the ones who in my darker moments now I don't really think are companions. See, I'm looking at you, Sarah Kingdom and Katarina. See, I'm doing it now! And they helped me to remember names and dates and facts and figures and they made me excited and happy to read and thrilled at possibilities. So who cares if some bits are wrong? I know I have that silly instinct to try and make things right. Yes, just so. Correct. And I know... Deep down, when I do it, that I'm doing it. But why fixate on that stuff instead of giving Haining due credit for giving me my gateway drug, for feeding my habit, and for enabling me to mainline all sorts of pleasures that gave me my high? And with Doctor Who, well, there hasn't been a come down. So it'd be silly of me to leave this trip back into those hallowed volumes with a negative impression. Silly and mean-spirited, and yes, maybe not exactly villainous, but perhaps it might just be, because I know I'm doing it, and I know it doesn't actually make anyone feel any good, except for me, and I know I don't have to do it. All of which might make me, yes, at the very least, if not villainous. Well, perhaps just a little bit scheming. And we wouldn't want that, now would we? Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to Indefinable Magic, which was written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music for Indefinable Magic was specially composed by Dominic Glynn. I would like to thank the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfindahl and Stephen Moffat, and Paul Gregory, Dave Hoskin, Richie Howarth, Andrew Jordan, Ashley Knight, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, Gavin McLean, David Matthewman, Jason Mayo, John McClay, Ross McPhillips, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Jonathan Molyneux, Kevin Murdoch, Matthew Newton, Graham Knott, Dave Owen, Melvin Pena, Keith Perry, Jonathan Potter, Kevin Parker, Scott Pride, Dylan Rees, John Rivers, Mark Sandham, Jim Sangster, Matt Sawyer, Stephen Anonymous, Neil Tate, Nick Temple, Sabrina Tirabassi, Reynard Toombs, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams, Andrew Willis, Andrew Wilson, Sydney Wilson, and Stephen White. <laughs>Did you like the way I said those names? If you do, I could say your name too, if you would like to become a patron. The cost is as little as £3 per month, and for that you get three releases a week, and in addition, a picture of my dog every week too, um, which is more popular than you and indeed I might initially think. Um, he's a lovely dog. Um, I did it as a joke, but he's got traction. Uh, they're more interested in him than me. Anyway, look, the dog's not the lure. That's a bonus. The lure is three releases, podcast releases or other materials uh, per week. Much, some of it exclusive. There's a whole exclusive podcast. So you get the happy times and places. That uh, You get those about six months earlier than the, the current ones out there right now. Uh, you get the Too Much Informations about a month before and the Indefinable Magics, these ones, about a month before. But you also get one called Far Too Much Information, which doesn't go out to non-patrons at all. Uh, a monthly AMA and other sort of bits of access. Another bonus goodies occasionally from my archive of... Uh, a video or audio and some interviews as well that have never been released before with people from the worlds of Doctor Who. So there's loads there. Uh, I keep it all coming out uh, uh, for £3 a month, uh, which you can also get a 10% discount on if you sign up for a whole year in advance. That is the lowest tier. Most things are available at the lowest tier. All the things I've just mentioned are available at the lowest tier. There are other little trinkets to lure you up the ladder because you could pay more than that if you like. But hey, I know times are difficult. I've just had my electricity bill. My goodness, I think things are going to get a lot worse than uh, uh, before they get better. And if that's the case, I'm just happy to sort of connect with everybody out there and at times when things are becoming more and more ridiculously expensive, if there's content out there that I'm providing that you're enjoying, I'm happy to play my part in making your day hopefully go slightly better or at least uh, uh, giving you the confidence of going, well, at least I'm not that prat. 
Um, but either way, I'm, I'm grateful to you for listening and I uh, do hope you enjoy this stuff. Uh, and if you do and you don't want to sign up to the monthly commitment, you can go to Kofi, Kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, uh, where you can give whatever you like, whenever you like. Uh, and there's you don't get any of the, the bonus stuff. But uh, if you're feeling flush uh, or, or uh, you particularly like a particular podcast or whatever, uh, bung something in my general direction. But there's no obligation uh, i'm grateful to you just for listening and i'm grateful to you for any support you can give that costs you nothing like spreading the word on cyberspace spreading your word by word of mouth telling your friends uh, if you've got friends uh, outside of the uk who are doctor who fans send them in my direction uh, i've always enjoyed performing in canada and america and uh, these podcasts uh, don't get listened to as much out there as they do in the UK so I'm very interested in connecting with people over there because I think we all learn from being exposed to different backgrounds and experiences and I've got a couple of fantastic uh, uh, American fans on the Patreon page who always uh, post really interesting perspectives and uh, you know you learn from that and uh, I'm nourished by it and I, I like the fact that uh, you know, I've reached out across the pond to, to, to be united with, with people that I otherwise might not have come across because of our, our mutual love of Doctor Who. So, um, yeah, that costs you nothing to spread the word um, and to leave five-star reviews wherever you get your podcasts and a few lines describing what you like about these. That really helps to make passing punters uh, get a whiff of what these are about and maybe be tempted by the smell. Uh, that... Um, that metaphor didn't necessarily end up where in the nicest place it could have done. But there we go. Please spread the word if you can. I'd be grateful. You can go on Twitter and follow me at Toby Haydoke and these podcasts at Haydoke Podcasts and my comedy club Excess Malarkey at Excess Malarkey. I am a working comedian on the live comedy circuit. I have a regular show in Manchester called Excess Malarkey every Tuesday and we have a Twitch channel twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. Sometimes there's Doctor Who crossover but I like to think I'm there's more to me than Doctor Who but I should probably go to my grave with the realisation that they're actually probably isn't but anyway if if you want to see what my comedy is like and uh, the the brilliant comedians that we've had join us uh, go to twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey and there's an archive of stuff that we built up there during the pandemic when we couldn't do live performances And I always do a bit of post-credit stuff, but this has been quite a long podcast, so um, I, something I couldn't find space for. I did, I did a, I did a podcast about mispronunciations and words, and I, I don't think I mentioned in that that I always thought of Sarah Kingdom as Sarah Kingdom because I have a a cousin called Sarah who is spelled S A R A. So she was Sarah Kingdom to me until I saw the episodes, and 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 you know. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Kingdom, Sarah Kingdom, and Katerina were introduced to me via that 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 twin, that double-barreled factoid attack of uh, the Radio Times twentieth anniversary special and Doctor Who celebration that introduced the concepts of these these companions, and I'd never read about those in the books, as well as Dodo, who I'd never heard of, who was always I can't remember if it's in the celebration or or in 
the Radio Times, I think it's in a celebration where she's described as the elfin dodo. And that phraseology is always stuck in my head. The elfin dodo. Um, not, not the wayward accented and <laughs> uh, slightly. I always, yes, poor old. I've always felt a bit sorry for, for dodo, but she will always in my heart be the elfin dodo. So uh, God bless you, the elfin dodo. That's how I first learned about you. And that's how you will always reside slightly in my head. The elfin dodo. Um, anyway, that's just something I couldn't find a place for, but that I thought was quite interesting. And then I've just said it out loud and realised that it's uh, it's not. So well done for my self-editing to have not put that in the main body of the piece, because I don't think any of us would have benefited. 